Hello everyone, my name is Raul Rosique. I go by Rudy. I'm a senior here at Syracuse University studying health and exercise science on the pre-physical therapy track. Prior to this, I was in the Navy for five years and I worked and lived on a nuclear submarine at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Today with me, I have the distinct pleasure of having Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion of Syracuse University, Dr. Mary Grace. How are you doing today? I'm well, how are you? Good. I want to say thank you for coming and spending some time with us today. Of course, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Um, so my first question is just, you talk about your background and how you end up in such a big leadership position at such a great school. Hmm. So I'm going to bring you back to the first day of new student orientation at the University of San Diego. And the first event for orientation had it listed as a surprise event at the law school parking lot. So I show up at eight o'clock and I realize there are so many people walking around with overalls and bandanas and straw hats. What are we doing here? <laughs> and it turns out to be a huge square dance for all the first years. And the orientation leaders knew if they put square dance, no one would show up, right? So they put <laughs> surprise event. And the reason why that event stands out in my mind is that was a university that was in the town that I was primarily raised in, right? I'm an immigrant from the Philippines, but I grew up in San Diego. And it's a very, very diverse city. But I remember standing in that parking lot, feeling lonely and scared, confused, nervous, because I didn't see any students of color. And it was a moment of culture shock to not see any other brown faces or dark hair in a sea of 1,000 people. And right when I was turning around to go back into my um, residence hall, I happened to look across the parking lot and there was a small group of people who I thought were students of color. And so I was like, are those my people? So I remember weaving through the sea of 1,000 people who were dosi doing <laughs> <laughs> And they turned out to be other Filipino students and other students of color. And the very next day, they took me to the United Front Multicultural Center. And that was a place where there were other students of color, where there were women leaders, where there were LGBTQ leaders. And that was my home away from home for four years. And when I think about what that experience was like for me as a first year student on the very, very first day and how confused and lonely I felt, I wanted to be in a position where I didn't recreate that for other students who were coming up after me. And I wanted people to feel like they belonged and that they made the right choice and that they were exactly where they needed to be. And so in many ways, I feel that I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be here sitting with you if that event didn't shake me to my core. Wow. And that's pretty interesting because like you said earlier, San Diego is so diverse. Yes. And for the school in that city, not to be diverse is pretty crazy. Yeah, and at that time I was... I was involved in our student government throughout um, my time there. And when I was leaving, I was talking to admissions and we had found out that it was only 7% of the students were students of color. Wow. Only 7%. That's crazy. Yes, yeah. in San Diego, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. And you know, having you know been in the military, San Diego, there's so much military there. And that's how they also got a lot of diversity. We're also on the border right there with Mexico, right? Yeah. So it's like, how can this campus be this white <laughs> <laughs> yeah. at that time. But it was a really pivotal moment in my life. Yeah, wow. That's, that's insane. Uh, I grew up in like around Bakersfield area, by the mm, way. Yeah, in the valley. Yeah, in the Central yeah. Valley. Yeah. yeah. I read on a Syracuse article about you. Mm -hmm. You also ended up in San Francisco for a while. Yes. How did you, why did you choose there? How did you get there? So right under undergrad, I was able to get a job as the director of multicultural services in Maryland. And I was there for four years. 
And that's a pretty big, far jump, big, big change. And everyone yeah. always asks, how did you end up here from <laughs> San Diego? And if you saw where I lived, it was a rural community. And at that time, um, it was a very aging population. A lot of people were older. It was predominantly white. Very, very few Filipinos again. <laughs> right. Um, and I knew that I wanted to come home. And I wanted to be not only closer to family, but be in a place that had more diversity. I wanted to be at a campus that had social justice as a core value. And the University of San Francisco was a place where, where I was able to do that. Uh, I worked at two campuses. Actually, I taught uh, on three different campuses, but most of my time in San Francisco was at USF. It was a Jesuit Catholic institution. And there's a lot of tension. You know, I identify as Catholic, but I also know that the Catholic Church was very oppressive. Mm -hmm. And when we look at the genocide of indigenous peoples, Jesuits and other um, Catholic entities were a part of that genocide. And so it's this constant negotiation of these tensions of, you know, being Catholic, but also having a social justice mission, being a woman in an, you know, as part of an organization that many see as very patriarchal, right? So I'm constantly navigating these tensions as an immigrant who came here as um, a baby, but is navigating two different cultures. I mean, I'm constantly navigating these graces. Yeah. I feel like being a woman too in a like, um, minority household is even tougher. Mm -hmm. And being the oldest. Yeah, because I feel like Filipinos and Mexicans almost have the same culture. Well, yeah, very Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because uh, we're at the high school. They have a big Filipino weekend every year in mm -hmm. Delano. And uh, man, it's just crazy. Just similarities. Do you know the, the significance of, of Delano and, and uh, Mexicans and Filipinos? Uh, I know about the Cesar Chavez. Yes. Well, yeah, yeah. Yes, know, yeah. yes. With the United Farm Workers yeah. and the coalitions, the inter-ethnic coalitions that we saw with the farm workers movement, right? Between Filipinos and Chicanos. Yeah. We also saw a lot of that inter-ethnic coalition in Hawaii with the sugar plantations. Oh, wow. Yes. And so, like, that was, um, you know, a lot of coalition with Japanese, Korean, Filipino. So, in many ways, I grew up with an ethos of inter-ethnic solidarity, um, where in some communities, um, you know, is this tension of being crabs in a barrel, mm -hmm. right? So, when one is achieving, others are pulling it down. Yeah. Um, but I come from an ethos of bringing others up as we climb. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. So, um, if you don't mind me asking, where did your PhD from? Yes, I got a doctorate of education at the University of San Francisco, and it was an education and leadership. Wow. Organization and leadership, rather. So after there, after San Francisco, how did you end up in Syracuse? Well, I had one more place before I ended up. And everyone keeps saying, you keep going to colder and colder <laughs> climates, right? So um, after San Francisco, I ended up getting a position at Brown University. Oh, wow. And I was there for eight years. And then I became the chief diversity officer at the University of Rhode Island. I was there for three years. And then that's how I ended up here in Syracuse. How'd you like Rhode Island? I loved it. A lot of Dominicans, a lot <laughs> of Cape Verdeans, surrounded by really, really good food. Again, not a lot of Filipinos, yeah. <laughs> but we found our way. You know, yeah. we, we built community. I met my husband in Rhode Island. And so um, it's been wonderful for us to travel here um, and to stay here, find a new home. Um, we actually have two sons who are going to be coming in as first-year students here. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yes. So we're, we're going to be forever orange also. Yeah. Right? So Syracuse has been amazing, amazing, Rudy. It's very welcoming. And absolutely. And seeing other Californians. Yeah. I don't know how we all... And I have a funny story about that. So my first weekend that I moved here to Syracuse, I saw that there was a Filipino food truck serving lumpia. Lumpia. Lumpia, lumpia. Yeah, I've been there. Yes. She's super nice. Yeah. Not only she's super nice, 
And not only she's she from Filipino, she's from San yeah. Diego, <laughs> and her mother owned the first one of the first Filipino bakeries in San Diego that we used to go to. And I remember when I first met her at the like Taste of Syracuse. Yeah, festival. that's where I saw her too. We oh, met her. Yeah, so funny. Yeah. We were like, "How do we end up here in Syracuse <laughs> from San Diego? How do we end up here? How did you end yeah. up here?" Right. So there are ways in which our journeys converge with others who influence us and. At that time, Dr. Sri Banks was a vice president here, and um, she she was a three-time alum of the university. She recently passed away last year, but prior to her passing, she spoke so highly of Syracuse, and she said she could never work at a university that wasn't as diverse as Syracuse or didn't have a real commitment. And that mattered to me that she had that sort of endorsement of the university's commitment. And I saw it every step of the way during my interview process. Wow. Something I found since leaving my high school, everywhere I've gone, I know I'm a minority. It makes me different. I was in a room, I was only Hispanic. Mm-hmm. Or like at my summer when I first got there, I was one of four colored people mm-hmm. out of 140 sailors. Mm-hmm. And that's crazy. I really have to get used to being uncomfortable mm-hmm. in every single stage of my life so far. Mm. I can relate a lot to that. So many times when I'm in a room, I'm either the first or one of very few. And even in 2023, there are going to be times when you're going to be the first or one of very few, Rudy, as I, as I have been. And in many ways, it's um, a call to action, right? Yeah. It's a call to action both to um, bring others in the community to consider diverse uh, perspectives and bring them into, into their organization. Um, but it's also an opportunity for us to encourage others who look and don't look like us to see how important it is to have different people around the table. Yeah, yeah, I always just, like tell people you should respect everybody, like mm-hmm. talk to everybody, and like the way you want to be treated, and mm-hmm. things just work out for you. Well, you know, and the other thing, and I remembered when I was at a previous institution, there was a group of us, four women of color, and we were all called the Latina deans, but only two of us were actually Latina, oh. and they all thought we were the same person. We would wow. get mistaken for each other all the time. All like I'd be called Dean Rodriguez, for example or de- whatever the, the last name may be. And, and I say, oh, that's not me. That's actually the Dominican woman with curly hair and glasses, right? <laughs> but the ways in which our presence as the only women of color deans, that we were both visible, hyper-visible, and hyper-invisible, meaning there weren't very many of us. Yeah. It's a reality that I navigate every day, as, especially as I move up in leadership roles. I'm one of very few, um, or the first sometimes. I know you say um, your family comes from the Philippines. Were they educated here or no? No. I have a, I have a story about that. I just want to point out something before I hear your story. Um, I find it even more challenging when, when people say, oh, you're first gen college student. Not only are you first gen college student, you're first gen in, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And I, sometimes I feel it's very hard for people to comprehend mm-hmm. when a sentence could be like from my, talk, my, talk to my father. He speaks like good English. Like mm-hmm. there's wrong with it, but he's not going to be speaking at a Syracuse level. Mm-hmm. English. Mm-hmm. So some of the, some of the sentences start in English and some of them in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very hard for it for people who don't didn't grow up like that to understand that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I should clarify, my mother got her bachelor's degree in the Philippines, but my father got his bachelor's in the United States. Oh. Wow. So my father is also a veteran. He was U.S. Navy. Cool. He yeah. stationed primarily in San Diego, the different bases and installations in San Diego. I remember when Top Gun came out, he, he was an aviation mechanic. It was right across the street. It was <laughs> a big deal to watch Top Gun, the original Top Gun. Yeah. Um, but there was a point in my college career where my father 
my brother and I were all undergrads. Oh, wow. It was amazing. Yeah. My brother was at San Diego State. Uh, my father was, at that time, he was um, at Southwestern Community College, and I was at the University of San Diego. And it, to know that my father pursued his bachelor's degree after he had already retired from the military, he was fine. He had his pension. Yeah. But he said, I want to get my bachelor's degree. And to his credit, he did it. And he would go to the pre-algebra classes. The <laughs> like, that's a very humbling tough, experience, yeah. right? When you were serving the military for 20 years, and yeah. now you're sitting with... 17-year-olds in yeah, the classroom you, in pre-algebra, right? Yeah, after 20 years, you're a big shot. Yes. Navy, yeah. Yes, but he got his degree and then he was able to get a second career. Um, and, and I'm very proud of my father because he understood the importance of education as a way to lift communities up and and to be a model for his family. Yeah, it's amazing. It's like, it's very tough for someone to go do that. And for like the immigrants to do that, it's like, amazing right like i was like my way my father came he was so young coming to america and like it's tough yeah can you imagine like if you picture yourself at his age when he came right like uh, when i picture my father and my mother coming at their age like what was i doing <laughs> i was taking classes like i was in college living my best life and my parents were buying houses and starting a family <laughs> like things like i can't even comprehend yeah. how they left their their all all that they knew in their life and for a life that they imagined for their kids. Like how brave yeah. and courageous and wonderful and resilient. And at the same time, how unfortunate that they didn't live in, at least for my father, it was a way for him to escape poverty, mm -hmm. that it wasn't a community that can sustain him and his family. Like in order to escape poverty, he had to join the military. To go back to what you said, like it isn't saying like what one person will do and will change like the next generation of your family. Like one, one person had to come to America and then it's just, we're, benefit, we're a benefit for generations now. Absolutely. And my grandfather had a first grade, first grade education, and he ran away from home when he was seven. Oh, man. And lived through the Japanese occupation in the Philippines. And to know that that is the legacy in which now I'm sitting in this room as a vice president. And I, that is my legacy. You know, my, my grandfather created that legacy, that resilience, that tenacity, that audacity. I'm very proud of that. Yeah, it's, it's very like prideful. Mm. I know that's your family, how mm. they got here. Yeah, and even, same to you. Yeah, even though I don't, I don't tell my dad this, or I don't tell my family this, whatever, like it's amazing. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm. like, everything you accomplish here, if you just try. Yeah. And, and especially when we come from immigrant families, we yeah. know it's, we didn't do it on our own, that yeah. we had the hopes and expectations of our families, and that our accomplishments are not just our own, but yeah. our families as well. Definitely. Mm -hmm. So, move on to the next question. How do vets fit into the diversity, equality, inclusion, and accessibility here on campus? So what I will say, one of the most distinctive features I saw about Syracuse was its deep commitment to veterans. And I also had the opportunity to tour the National Veterans Resource Center. It's a beautiful building. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, diversity of images that you see, the ability to interact with that space, keeping um, inclusion and accessibility at its core, everything from ramps to interactive um, visuals, right? Like that's to me such an incredible exemplar to our commitment to DEIA. And when we think about the veteran population, it's one of the most diverse because you're going to see cross section of different ages, different disabilities, races, genders, sexual orientation, religion, all of that is encompassed within our veteran community. And what a wonderful way for us to think about 
um, our veteran community as part of the DEIA experience. And um, first generation, how many of our veterans are also first generation immigrants, but first generation in college, Yeah. right? I, I just think that to be at a place where we are a global destination for veterans and military connected families as a daughter of a veteran makes me really proud to work at a university where we've had a long history of doing that. And I know that within our own population, uh, again, the, the percentage of students of color, the percentage of those who are first gen, I mean, we have really good representation within our veteran community. Yeah. Sometimes I find that um, a veteran is one contract the way I did one contract. You come out, you're still in your 20s. It's very easy to be compatible to both student. Your mind's a little different. You know, like I deployed twice. Student absolutely did not. But once people start getting to a second or third contract, I know this is a lot harder for them to just interact and just get involved. I told just, just try, man. Or women, just go out there, have fun, enjoy your college experience. You deserved it. Mm-hmm. And we also have to expand what we think about the college experience is, you know, when I was growing up, college on television looked like fraternities and sororities and drinking all the time. Like that was sort of the typical image of college. And when we think about the types of communities who are entering college now, we have a lot of folks who are parents. We have a lot of people of different ages, those who are coming back to school after having started and then having a break for because oh, life yeah. happens and then coming back, right? So even understanding a traditional college student, we have to challenge what we see as traditional because traditional isn't necessarily just 18 to 22 year olds. Yeah. In a place, especially like this, where we have so many veterans and we have a lot of colleagues and students who are coming with different life experiences, you know, as I said, they might be families, they might be caregivers of older parents. They're coming with a lot more um, complex um, situations that they're managing as they're also pursuing their degree. Going to add to that, um, I think this just proves how much Syracuse cares about students. Uh, recently, I had uh, two single moms come on this podcast and talk about their life in college as a single parent, going through the, all the struggles that, that compiles with that. And they said nothing but fantastic things about Syracuse campus, how they helped in different programs, how they just made their college experience easier and worked with them. And they said they, they did not expect that at all coming here. Like mm -hmm. they're truly grateful for the campus. Mm -hmm. And the kinds of resources, I mean, even if you look at the resources at the Barn Center, yeah, everything from pet therapy to mental health resources. Yeah, massage chairs. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Wellness yeah. in, a, in a very holistic sense. I wish I had it. I wish I went to school that had the kinds of resources that Syracuse provides for students. Yeah. So we're talking about like diversity earlier. Affirmative action has been a pretty popular thing lately. What are your thoughts on it? As the vice president for diversity inclusion, I care deeply about making sure this campus is accessible, um, is inclusive, is welcoming. And I think about the ways in which I, in my role and my colleagues in their respective role, can remove the barriers to access. Because what we know is when students do well and they graduate with their college degrees, they are lifting up their families, their neighborhoods, and their communities. And there's been a lot of concern lately around the Supreme Court decision and ruling around affirmative action. And when I think about the implications that can have for us here at Syracuse, I want to go back to what I said earlier in terms of being so impressed with Syracuse. We have had a long history of being inclusive whether it's accepting veterans, yeah. accepting Jewish students, women students, those who are interned in Japanese internment camps. There have been 
many instances and examples where Syracuse has said, we remain committed to diverse communities. And when I think about um, the ways in which we're going to recruit moving forward, we need to think really critically around different communities who probably never even considered Syracuse as a viable option for them. And think about places where we haven't really done as good of an outreach effort as we could have. Because I'm a firm believer that when one student graduates, they are lifting up their entire community. And so when I think about the student experience, I think about that. I also think about the ways in which we recruit a diverse faculty and staff. Um, it's important that we also think about those who teach and support students, that we have to also do our due diligence to recruit the brightest scholars and the best administrators and staff who are going to serve our students. And we have to cast a wide net. So for me, it's really around access and providing opportunities for people to consider not only Syracuse as a place where they can be accepted or where they can work, but where they're going to thrive. Yeah. Um, and a funny quick story. The reason I chose Syracuse, or the reason I went on my radar, that's how the movie Express. Oh, I haven't seen it. No, oh wow. Let me write that. Yeah, down. the Express is about like the Ernie Davis story. Oh. And I was like, man, this school is like a trailblazer when it comes to minorities getting like moving through life. Mm. And not until after that, I started research, I realized there's such a military friendly school. But the only reason that it was on my radar because it's like what it has done in the past for minorities and the first uh, African-American Heisman Trophy winner and mm -hmm. just trailblazing. I was like, wow, this school. Like, I really want to go to school like that. Yeah, I mean, it's hard when you're in the Valley to yeah. that life where there's so much snow as much as there yeah. is here. No, yeah, it's the first place I've seen uh, snowfall. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, wow, that's crazy. Like, mm -hmm. I thought white Christmas were like fake <laughs> until I got here. I was like, oh, man, it's kind of yeah. crazy. When I lived in uh, Rhode Island and obviously here, whenever I go to San Diego for the winter holidays, you know, I'll say, oh, I'm just, do I go to the pool or do I go to the beach? Like, <laughs> and then back here, that would be, do I wear my parka? Do I wear yeah. my boots? Do I wear my scarf? It's a different yeah. way of thinking. Yeah, it's insane. Mm -hmm. What do you think universities in general could do to ensure diversity on their campus? Yeah, so I think it's important that at all levels of the institution, we model a commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. That might look like recruiting people in powerful positions of influence who have diverse perspective. Um, it also looks at our curriculum to see what can we do to educate our students and our faculty who are teaching these classes, okay. right? Um, the different and complex issues that we're dealing with within a global society. Um, it's removing barriers to access and removing barriers to being fully included, whether that's um, spaces and classrooms that have universal design for learning or having inclusive presentations where those who are visually impaired, for example, can access those materials. Um, and I think it has to be part of the ethos of the institution. You can't just have some outlier like in our strategic plan goal number five refers to diversity and it's like <laughs> yeah. nowhere else it has yeah. to be so embedded into the fabric of our institution whether it's in representation in our marketing materials and communications or the kinds of projects that we're funding that promote equity and inclusion um, again to the curriculum to who we're recruiting it has to be embedded in the fabric of our institution 
And to me, it meant a lot when Syrac after Supreme after the Supreme Court ruling, when Syracuse went out publicly and said, like, this one we're extremely disappointed. That's not affect our decision moving forward. I was like, wow, I'm so glad I come to the school. Like, this is amazing. Like, and not that I looked up any other schools, but like I didn't publicly see any other schools do that. Mm. And did you see there are a lot of us who have signed that at the highest level, the highest levels of leadership, including wow. our board of trustees chair. That's that's amazing. That's great to hear. Like that meant a lot to me and a couple other people that I know are here. Like, wow, this is amazing. I'm glad we come to the school, made the right decision. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we heard that from alumni. Like, that's oh, why we're oh. forever orange is because of this commitment. That's great. What are your thoughts on gentrification? Mm. So you mentioned, you asked me about my time in San Francisco. The San Francisco I lived in back then is a very different San Francisco than it is now. And a lot of it has to do with gentrification. And what comes with the gentrification? On one end, you'll see innovation. You'll see opportunities for up-and-coming entrepreneurs to do amazing work yeah. and revive communities that may not have as many resources at the time. Um, but it comes at a cost sometimes. And it also includes the displacement of communities that are likely to be in poor neighborhoods, likely to be immigrant, likely to be people of color, likely to be people who are in need of health resources and educational resources. And so I'm always a believer that um, with great power comes great responsibility. And if we think about how to work with communities that don't have the resources to thrive, rather than displacing communities, we all can benefit. And so that takes a lot more time to build partnerships with community-based organizations, with community leaders within those neighborhoods or within those communities to do this work together. But in the end, I think that's a better outcome than displacing communities that may need that boqueria or that may yeah. need um, uh, services that aren't always provided at other places. And you know, I, I think about San Francisco. I was there a couple of years ago and it was heartbreaking, Rudy, heartbreaking to be walking the streets where I saw so many men of color who were displaced, who were literally on the streets, didn't have places to eat full meals on a consistent basis or um, consistent housing. It's, it's heartbreaking. And I think we have a responsibility to work with communities and not against communities. That's a fantastic point. Like working with communities, but like, I agree with everything you're saying. I feel like it's very hard sometimes for communities to like go of the past and move on to the future. And, you know, we eventually when I have kids, I'm taking back to my, where I grew up. There's a part of me that wants gentrification mm -hmm. because generally when that happens, communities are safer. Mm. I love the tacos in the corner, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to walk there at night to get mm -hmm. the tacos. No, mm -hmm. I'm going to drive there in order to go and leave most likely. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of sad. I guess that's unfortunate. Mm. So I guess so. You're right. Like working with community leaders, what I make best of both worlds. Mm. That'd be fantastic. And see what the needs are, rather than also anticipating what those needs are. Oh yeah. So it's like actually we need more. Uh, we need more resources in our schools versus needing more X. Right. Like it's important to identify the needs of the community. And I would also say, when we think about how our communities are impacted. It's important to also see the structural and environmental conditions that allow for some communities to thrive and others not to. So, for example, we can identify neighborhoods here in Syracuse or in our hometowns where you'll see rent-a-centers, check cashing, right, coin-operated laundries, liquor yeah. stores, and other areas that have yoga studios and, <laughs> you know, all, all these other yeah, Whole Foods, right? <laughs> um, 
that's by design. Yeah. And so thinking about the structural issues that play into a community success is, is also, I think, an opportunity for us to, to think about how to work in partnership. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, so something I asked all the guests here, what is your favorite quote and why? My favorite quote is often attributed to a Filipino revolutionary, Jose Rizal. And it's not a direct translation, but it's been used in this way by the Filipino community. And it's no history, K-N-O-W, no history, no self, no history, N-O, no history, no self. Wow. So in order for me to know, um, to, to sort of appropriate my own identity, to have proud, to have pride rather, I need to know where I come from. I need to know my legacy. I need to know the, what contributions the generations before me have made. And I am not who I am today were it not for the contributions of my, my ancestors. So no history, no self, no history, no self. That's amazing. I'm going to go back to what we talked about in the beginning where the people before us paved the way. Mm. So yes. That's, that's my grandfather, my grandmother. Yes, from very, very humble beginnings um, to now be in a place where I get to sit here with you yeah. during this podcast, Rudy. It's during amazing. the middle of the day. Yes. AC room, relax. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, in, it's insane. Yes. I was, uh, saw, I saw this thing online where it was like, older man was saying, I want my kids to have a job where they had to shower before work, not afterwards. Mm. And I was like, whoa. Mm. That's deep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The regular man who works in tractors or whatever. Yeah. Said so that. I was like, oh, wow, that makes a lot of sense. Well, you know, and, and you said you're from Bakersfield. My my grandfather was one of the migrant farm workers who worked in the grape fields. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of my family, my grandparents, my my parents worked in the fields for a while. What if what if we're cousins? <laughs> well, you know, my my grandfather came back listening to Norteño <laughs> after being in the fields That's and funny. banda music. Yeah. It's like, of course. <laughs> When I, I talked to that lady, the Olympia lady here. Yes. And uh, I said, I'm like, oh, Delano, I was running to high school. And she was like, Delano, I know that. But I was like, how do you know Delano? Like, uh, all Filipinos know Delano. Yes. I was like, what? Yes. No, she knows where she comes yeah. from. She knows history. Yeah. <laughs> Man, well, uh, I just want to thank you so much for coming and spending time on your busy day. The Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion at Syracuse University, I'm sure, has a hectic schedule. So I just really appreciate you coming and speaking with us. Thank you, Rudy. Thank you to you.